0: Our God, we thank you that you have not brought us into this world to be hopeless and helpless, but you've brought us into this world that we might come to know you, whom to know is life eternal, that we might turn to you and find joy and peace, that we might find direction for our lives and we might find service uh, in your kingdom. Oh Lord, I thank you for each one in this room this hour, and Lord, I know that each individual, has needs of his or her own, and Lord, I trust you to meet those needs, and that through our study today, maybe there will be a word of encouragement, a word of guidance, a word of help uh, for each of our hearts that will cause us to walk with greater faith, uh, with greater hope, and greater commitment. Father, I pray that as the Word of God is taught throughout our Sunday School this morning, and in the service uh, that is going on at this time, that you will be very present in power And that you will touch each life according to your perfect will. Lord, I thank you for uh, the goodness of your spirit to guide us, to teach us, to uh, enlighten our hearts and our minds. And so we submit to his authority today in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapter 9 of the book of Exodus, in verses 22 through 26, which we were studying at the end of class last time, We find there a description of the seventh plague. You you remember, of course, that there were ten plagues that came upon Egypt as a part of God's judgment upon this land. And and this series of plagues occurred 3,400 years ago. There are very, very few events that occurred 3,400 years ago about which we have this kind of detail. In fact, it could probably safely be be said that there is no other event that's happened in history 3,400 years ago or more about which we have this kind of detail. Because if you go into the study of ancient history, you'll discover that writing was not very prolific in the second millennium before Christ. Writing had been invented, and hieroglyphics uh, were well-developed, and cuneiform was already in the phonetic form. and and writing was in the process or had already been invented in China also. But who wrote? Very, very few people wrote. Just the highly literate people of the society which were usually the priests. In fact, the priests provided the intelligentsia for almost every ancient advanced society. So Very few read, very few wrote, and what was written often was inscriptions on a a cliff face, as you'll find over in Persia, or uh, on the monuments in Egypt. And there wasn't much in the way of what we would know as transportable writing. The Egyptians had invented papyrus, or developed papyrus, which was transportable, but there was very little of that, and that decays. In fact, papyrus is not as long-lasting as is parchment and that's why parchment was eventually developed to provide a longer-term writing medium. The cuneiform was almost always written on clay tablets and those, of course, in the process get broken and shattered and buried and lost. And so here we have detailed accounts of two men, for example, in conversation together and all of the descriptions of what God did in in great detail. And there is nothing like it in ancient history at all. And so we read about these six plagues. And as we came to the seventh plague and we began to study it last week, we, we discover that the intensity of the plagues has continued to increase until now the plague actually begins to cost human life. In response to God's command, Moses took that staff which God had ordained in the wilderness at Mount Sinai before the burning bush. And he took that staff and he lifted it up to heaven according to God's command. And instantly the skies blackened and the greatest thunderstorm ever to occur in Egyptian history broke out across the land. We read about the continuous lightning strikes I mean, flashing from, from every direction constantly, which is a very unusual phenomenon. And, and then, for of course, the obvious peals of thunder, which just roared continuously like an ongoing major battle. And, and certainly, most of the Egyptians were virtually in shell shock just from that. They had never experienced anything like it before. And then, of course, the worst uh, of this all was the massive hailstorm which came down and pulverized virtually every exposed living thing. But in the midst of it all, at the end of class last time, we noted that the grace and the power of God was exhibited, in that in the land of Goshen, no lightning struck, the thunder was only a distant roar they could hear over the horizon, and no hail fell, because God was preserving Israel in the midst of this great judgment that he was bringing upon the land of Egypt. Let's look at verses 27 and following of Exodus chapter 9. Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Make supplication to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's hail and thunder. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said to him, As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord, and the thunder will cease, and there will be hail no longer, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord." And then there's a parenthetical statement. Now the flax and the barley were ruined. For the barley was in ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they ripened late. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased and rain no longer poured on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Even Pharaoh, in his great palace there in Memphis, was frightened by the constant flashing of of lightning and the roar of the thunder and the horrible din of the falling hail. And of course, the message is coming in that destruction was sweeping across the land. And so he makes this kind of half hearted confession. you know, brings Moses in here and says, I I, I have sinned this time. What does he mean, this time? (laughs) As if he hadn't sinned every time as the result of every plague. He has sinned this time. It's it's a real half-hearted statement on his part, qualifying, of course, his confession here. And, of course, it's a confession not produced by conviction in his heart that he is wrong before God, but by sheer terror. You know, kind of a foxhole statement. He's not truly repentant. He's merely scared to death. And there is a difference. There's a great difference. Being scared to death might possibly produce repentance. But generally, repentance comes not so quickly because we have to be convinced that God is right and we are wrong before we really become repentant. The old Puritans used to believe that there wasn't any way you could become converted in any short period of time. You had to wrestle with your sin and with God's convicting words for months on end before they would believe you could actually come to a point of real grace. Well, I don't know that that's totally scriptural, but it beats a foxhole conversion usually, uh, which often isn't a conversion. But it's interesting what he says here. Pharaoh says, the Lord, and he uses the word Yahweh, which is Moses' word for the God of Israel. He says, he is the righteous one, the the just one in this situation. And I and my people, we are the wicked, or he's actually saying morally wrong, the guilty ones here in this situation. Now, why is he saying this? Well, we have to put him in the context of his own religion. He worshipped a pantheon full of Egyptian gods. Now, these Egyptian gods, for the most part, although Horus was often viewed as the all-seeing eye of God, you know, they they didn't have a concept of, of any of the gods who, who was omnipotent or omniscient or omnipresent. As I mentioned to you before, they didn't believe their gods really extended outside of Egypt. You went out of Egypt, there were other gods, and that was okay with them. And that their god could know all things? No, you could hide things from the gods of Egypt. You, know, you could do things in secret, and they wouldn't know about it. And you know, that they were uh, all powerful? Oh, no, because they fought amongst themselves, and, and sometimes you could do things to, to get the gods to do something else. You could appease the gods, and that's what he's trying to do here. He's trying to appease God by saying, God, you're right, and I and my people are wrong. Are you happy with me now? You know, this is kind of the idea. He's he's trying to appease God. He's trying to convince Moses that he really is making a change here by using these moral terms in this particular situation. So he's trying to impress. And even though he's had now seven experiences to demonstrate the greatness of the God of Israel, particularly over the Egyptian pantheon, he hasn't got the point. He doesn't realize that the God he is dealing with knows his heart and knows his thoughts even before he thinks them. He has has no concept of that because that's not the way it is with the Egyptian gods. And to try to break that that mold into which he had been born and raised is is difficult for him. Pharaoh then uh, demonstrates his two-facedness by the the statements that he makes there that we read in verse 28. He says, make supplication to the Lord. First of all, he says, make supplication to the Lord. Pray to your God for me. You know, he does want him to actually pray, but he just wants to get this thing over, that's all. Because he had already said earlier, two plagues back. When the situation developed like this, he says, pray to your God, you know, intercede to your God for me for my people. I mean, he's, he's not asking him, pray to God that I might be a different man. He's just saying, pray to God that this thing will get over with. Then secondly, he says, there's been enough of God's hail and thunder. I mean, who's he to determine when it's enough? That That's a statement to indicate that God is not omnipotent, all-powerful, and all-wise in, in Pharaoh's eyes. He's trying to say that Well, God should know this purpose has been achieved by now, that uh, I believe Moses' words, and I understand you're God, and so let's just get this thing over with, okay? It's a flippant attitude, really, that he's displaying here. And then, of course, he lies through his teeth again. He says, I'm going to let you all go. You can just leave. You can be gone. If you'll just do this, you can leave. And he knows he's not telling the truth because he's made this promise before and reneged on it, and he is going to do exactly that again. All he's trying to do is get out from under the pressure of this destructive storm. That's all he wants. End the pressure, get the problem over with, and life will go back to normal. This man is a very insincere man and is dealing with Moses and with the God of Israel. He's not about to submit, truly submit, To the God of the slaves, how could he, the Lord of the mighty land of Egypt, bow to the God of slaves? It was beyond his imagination for him to make such a humble commitment. Now, God gives to Moses discernment in this situation. God is the giver of discernment. God gives to us the gift of discernment when we need it. And there's a situation, and we need, because God is using us to, to, to minister in a situation, God will help us to understand what we need to do and what we need to say. Of course, in order for that to happen, we need to be in communion with God. We need to be in close fellowship with Him. We need to be people of prayer. And God is giving to Moses discernment here. And he was not taken in by Pharaoh's promise. He could say, oh, great, Pharaoh, you finally got the point. You're admitting that you're a sinner and that God is the righteous one, and you're going to let us go. Goody, goody. No, Moses knows better. Now, Moses does say, I'm going to intercede for you. I'm going to intercede for you and the land. I'm going to go outside the city, and I'm going to pray that the end of the storm will come. But he makes it very clear, but it's not because I believe your words. Because in verse 30 that we read, he says, Because I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. The only thing you fear is the devastation that's coming. In effect, Moses is saying, I will ask God to end this plague, but only for two reasons. And I'm inferring one of these. and, And that is out of mercy. And the other is, he states specifically, that you might know that God is the God of authority. That God rules. Our God reigns, in other words, is what he's saying there. I will do it for those reasons. Not because I believe you. Not because I believe your words. Because you've lied through your teeth so many times before. Because I know that you do not, and it's interesting, you could put the emphasis on the word yet. You do not yet know or fear the Lord God. Why has he emphasized the word yet? Because Moses has come to know God. And to know God, God is a persistent person. God doesn't just try something and say, Oh, well, it didn't work. Uh, forget that. God knows what he's doing and how to do it. And if God needs to in- intensify the pressure, if he needs to turn the vice Tighter, he will do it. And that's, of course, what's happening through all ten plagues. It's kind of like cranking that wheel, you know, when that vice is, is just closing tighter and tighter and tighter on Pharaoh and the land of Egypt. And there's a point at which they will come to recognize and to fear the God of Israel. I think it's important for us to notice in this event the, the, in this event, the role that prayer plays. Moses, in verse 29 said that I will go outside the city. It's an interesting thought there. I mean, this horrible storm is, is devastating the land. And Moses is going to walk outside the palace, outside the city to pray? I mean, how does he do that without getting pulverized to death? Well, obviously, God saw to it that no hail fell upon his man. We talked about Psalm 90 before, a couple weeks ago. And I think that as Moses was carrying out the will of God, God preserved Moses from all danger and harm and destruction. And so he could walk out right through this horrendous storm, untouched, as if he had an iron shield over his head. Probably an angel up there with his wings unfolded, you know, whatever. And the scripture says he went out, and, and it says literally that I will turn my palms to heaven in prayer. Lift my palms, my hands, palms up. I'm not saying that that's the only way to get prayers answered. Paul, Paul in, on Sunday nights is telling uh, those of you who are going there how to get prayers answered, I'm sure. And I'm sure that's not the only way. <laughs> But th- this was his method of demonstrating to Pharaoh that he was going to offer intercessory prayer for Pharaoh and for the land of Egypt. And he could do it with absolute confidence that God would hear his prayer because he said, and the storm will stop. The hail will stop falling. Now, how could Moses be so bold? How could he say, I'm going to go out there in the midst of this horrible storm, and I'm going to pray to God in a storm And the hail's going to stop like that. How many of us would dare to make such a statement? (laughs) Well, we could and we can if we function the way Moses did. Moses knew the will of God in this situation. Moses did not only discern the heart of Pharaoh, he was discerning the heart of God because God had revealed that truth to him. God had revealed to him what he was going to do. And it empowered Moses to do this. And so Moses, with absolute confidence, could say, I'm going to pray to God, and God is going to end this storm immediately. He did this because he knew the will of God. And you and I can pray with that same kind of confidence as we learn to know the will of God. And I'm sure Paul, in his teachings, has or will use this verse, but let's look at First uh, John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. These are key verses on prayer. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, where John is saying, and this is the confidence, the absolute assurance, which we have before Him, that is God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And that if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked of Him. We can have that absolute confidence that He hears our prayer, and that we know that if He hears our prayer, He will answer our prayer. Now that does not necessarily mean that He will always answer it exactly as we have outlined to Him He ought to answer it. But he will answer that prayer. It, uh, successful praying, as far as Moses was concerned, was knowing the mind of God and the will of God. I think that translates into our lives. You and I can pray successfully if we know the will of God. And that's where knowledge of the Word of God is so critical. If we don't know God's Word, how in the world do we know what God's will is? You might as well roll dice for figuring out God's will if we, if we don't study the Word of God. Because through the study of the Word of God, we not only learn specific things that we might proclaim to be the will of God, but we learn the character of God and the nature of God and the attributes of God so that we can think like God thinks. And when we think like God thinks, it, it changes us. Uh, last night we had... a Th- this weekend has been homecoming weekend over at the college. And last night we had a, a major banquet for the people coming back from different years who had attended the college. And as part of the program, they had uh, oh, half a dozen of the young people speak who had been overseas this past summer. Uh, one lady had been to G- Gabon in Africa, and one lady had been to the Philippines, and one fellow had been to Brazil, and another fellow and a gal had been uh, in uh, the Ukraine. And the, the young man who had been in the Ukraine talked about how that time he spent there, and, and they all made reference to this, to the fact that their overseas mission time changed them more than anything. You know, they saw God work, and they saw God do good things, and they saw people saved. But they, they, they admitted that God changed them through this more than he changed anything or anybody else. And this young man was particularly saying that in a certain situation that developed, his attitude had been wrong and God just gave him the grace to, to do what he needed to do. And the response was such that it, from, from this person that was kind of really uh, you know, rubbing him the wrong way, this Ukrainian person, that when it was all over, God confirmed to his heart what was right in this situation. That our normal attitudes are wrong. The normal attitude that we have in life, uh, you know, that which comes naturally, common sense, often is wrong in many situations. Because our natural reaction is, you tread on me and I'm going to tread on you. You, know? <laughs> you punch me and I'll punch you sort of idea. And he began to learn something of the servanthood nature of Christ. And it went against his normal character, but he submitted to it. And as a result, God was able to help him to see why more why Christ came. And how he, as the, as, as the God of the universe and creator of us all, could submit to what he submitted to. You know, you and I sometimes, we, why should I put up with this junk any longer, you know? I do this and I do this, that, and nobody appreciates me. I think I'll just go and live in the woods, you know, where the, the deer and the antelope play or something, you know. I guess that's on the range, but wherever. <laughs> but who appreciated Christ when he was here? <laughs> the God of the universe, who appreciated him? You know, a dozen men, and well, the group was a little larger than that. There were 120 in the upper room, but... But even they fled, and even Peter said, I don't know the man. Uh, So Jesus could have died on the cross feeling that his mission was a total failure because nobody loved him at the time when he was dying for the sins of the world. And so for you and for me, it's easy to get down by thinking, people just don't appreciate what I'm doing. You know, They don't understand me. They don't care. And, and so I'm just going to give it all up and forget it. But Jesus didn't, and it's a good thing he did. Or <laughs> uh, We'd all be going where Pharaoh is. And uh, I, I don't think any of us would relish that idea for one moment. So, so we need to emulate Christ in this. And that's what Moses is doing. He, he doesn't know Christ in the sense of, of the actual life and ministry of Christ. He has this concept of serving the God of the universe and that the God of the universe is the Savior of the world. And so he's committed to doing his will. And that's what we need to be. And part of that is having the confidence in us that if we ask anything according to his will, he will do it. So we need to know what his will is. And there are several passages of Scripture which specifically say what his will is. He says, I am not willing that any should perish, for one thing, and so forth. It's right for us to pray for the salvation of of the unsaved around us, all the way from uh, the highest in authority to to the lowliest of persons we may know about. Well, verses 31 and 32 of of Exodus 9 uh, give us a little bit of of a parenthetical statement to kind of, help us to understand the extent of the damage, and maybe something of the time frame of of this event. The passage tells us that the barley was in head, and the flax was budding. And those who have studied the ancient records will tell us that meant it was about February. February was the time of the year when barley was in head and flax flowers in Egypt or in in northern Africa. And so we, we can figure that part out. More or less, so it's a February event. But of course, that doesn't help us a lot. If we don't know what year it was, probably around 1450 BC, uh, give or take a few years. Now, barley, of course, we understand. Barley was a grain that was that was important to human sustenance in those sustenance in those days. Flax also was a plant that was uh, useful to them, very useful to the Egyptians. In fact, they probably. Uh, developed the use of flax uh, more highly than any other society did in the ancient world. Flax is a a plant that grows about a yard high and flowers in blue flowers. And and the Egyptians used it for two things. Uh, They used it for the fiber, which they dried and stripped out of the stalks, which then they wove into linen. And, and, And the Egyptians carried linen fabric to its most exquisite ultimate in the ancient world they were able to weave linen to the point that it was almost transparent. This fine, fine, fine cloth that, I mean, you know, you could just look right through it. And quite often they wore that and we we understand that from many of the carvings and and, uh, wall, cave, uh, not cave, uh, tomb paintings that have existed and of course examples of flax have survived in that very dry climate but they also used the seed when the flower died the seeds were generated and and then they crushed them to produce linseed oil and that was of course a preservative to use in the wood that uh, they had in their society So, so flax was very important to the egyptian society the the scripture tells us also that however the wheat and the spelt crops were not damaged or at least not seriously damaged Uh, Because they were not in head yet. Now, spelt is is another grain. It's somewhat similar to wheat. The chances are that actually it wasn't even out of the ground yet. Because if it had been out of the ground, whether it was in head or not, it would have been beaten to a pulp by the, the falling hail. So probably it wasn't even out of the ground at that time yet. So, Moses goes out. He lifts his hands to God in prayer and he asks God to halt the storm. The hail stops, the thunder stops, the lightning stops and the thunder stops. Uh, I don't know if the clouds instantly parted or what they did, but there was an absolute demonstration of who was in charge here. It wasn't like, you know, some people try to explain away the miracles of the New Testament and say, well, or, or the Old Testament for that matter, you know, oh, well, you know, there was a passing of a nearby comet and it caused the Red Sea to get slopped around a little bit, or there was a volcano erupting over here and something did this and the other thing. Rather than admit that God is able or that God will intervene in human life miraculously, I think the clouds parted quickly, almost as if a great hand went so that nobody could deny. They couldn't just say, well, it was the natural going away of the storm. You know, we see it happen all the time. I think it was a miraculous deliverance from the storm because Moses had said, one of the reasons I'm going to go out and pray is that you might know that our God reigned. But as soon as the trouble is over, how did Pharaoh respond? Scripture says he hardened his heart and reneged on his promise. Oh, isn't that novel and new, you know? I'm so surprised. Moses, of course, knew it was going to happen and was not surprised at all and knew God had more plagues yet to bring. And so that brings us to the 10th chapter of Exodus in which are recorded the 8th and the 9th plagues that God will bring against the land of Egypt. So let's look at the first two verses to begin with of chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. Notice how often that shows up. What does that tell us? That the knowledge of God is absolutely imperative and all-important above anything else. To not know God and yet to be the best of whatever it is you do in the world is a disaster. You might as well, at least from an eternal point of view, be a bum in the streets, you know, as the best architect in the world if you don't know God. In verse 1 of this passage, God made a statement that was both encouraging and damning at the same time. It was encouraging because it reminded Moses of who was in charge anyway. God is fully in charge of human affairs, and nothing is out of his control. We may think it sometimes. We, we may think that everything in the world is flowing against God and His Church, and therefore, oh dear, we wring our hands and think how terrible it's how God's in charge. He's going to do what He wants to do, and we're to be a part of that. And of course, our prayers uh, play a big role in His change that, in the change He brings. He's saying, "I have confirmed Pharaoh." and his cohorts in their sin and in their pride. Why? So that I can perform my signs. So I can do these wondrous things. It was damning in that it reveals what the result is from Pharaoh's pride and his refusal to bow before the Lord of the universe. And that result was that He had passed the point of no return. And therefore, his destruction and the destruction of his followers and the destruction of Egypt was inevitable. There was no turning back now. Let me read a couple of verses from Proverbs that help us to understand this principle to realize it's not just localized in Pharaoh. In Proverbs chapter 16, we have a couple of verses that you've certainly read them many times probably. In, verse six, in chapter 16, verse 18, it says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Pride goes before, before destruction. And then in verse 25, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That is an answer to those people who say to you and to me, how can your belief be the true belief and all these other very believable religions and, and philosophies that are taught worldwide not be also right? And we can say there is a, right, a, a way that seems right unto a man but the end thereof is death. Because really all of these other philosophies and religions are the result, if you will, of the Nimrodian uh, revolution or rebellion. When Nimrod said, in your face, God, and, and launched these other religions, and from it we have inherited Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and all the other religions of the world which are an attempt to avoid knowing the true and the living God. I just really find it hard that uh, people will go to the extent they will to avoid the truth. I mean, obviously, each individual isn't saying, I don't want to know the truth, so I'm going to follow this. But, you know, that's what it ends up being. They may not consciously think that way. But how how humiliating it, it seems to me to stop five times a day and bow down literally on your face with your hind end in the air to Mecca five times a day. And some people will drop their little carpet and do it anywhere. And, and, you know, all for what? For nothing. Because the end thereof is death. But to yield to God is the hard thing. Because not only does our flesh say, no, and our pride say no, but the devil says, that's right. The answer is no. You don't want you don't want to bow to God because I mean Buddha, he's just as right. And uh, you know, Lao Tzu in Taoism, in he's he's right too, and on down the line. You know, Joseph Smith, you know, Charles Tez Russell, Mary Baker Eddy. Sure, they all have their own little line into the central computer. And it doesn't matter which way you follow. It's damning. God has given Pharaoh numerous opportunities to yield. Six, now seven times. And he had spoken to him by his prophet Moses, who had demonstrated that his word was the word of God, and it was true. And he had performed great miracles, bringing the plague and then ending the plague at his choice of timing. It didn't matter what Egyptian god tried to resist. I mean, he he smeared the gods of the Nile and the gods of the air and the bull gods and the cow gods and all the other gods of Egypt were made to look non-existent, because they were, and yet Pharaoh rejected it all. So God said, fine. You've sealed your own doom. God would use Pharaoh and God would use Egypt to teach His people Israel of His righteousness and of His almighty power and that God will do His will and therefore we had better be in line with it because we cannot resist it. The folly of rejecting God's word becomes so, so evident here. And You know, in some ways we are guilty of rejecting God's word if we aren't in the process of learning it. You know, absorbing it, making it a part of our lives. And and keeping it in you know in the forefront of all that we do and all that we think. Judging everything in its light. This event will be recounted over and over again in Scripture. Have you ever noticed that as you read through the other books of the of the Pentateuch and then you read through the Psalms and other places, it, it keeps repeating how God dealt this this great series of plagues to Egypt, and then how he brought Israel out into uh, the Sinai, how God did all, I mean, he keeps repeating it, because he wanted his people to learn to fear him, to trust him, and obey. If we fear the Lord, we trust the Lord, and we obey the Lord, what else is there? That's what life's about, and that's what God's goal, goal is in our lives. Well, let me, uh, let's, let's read the next few verses so they'll be in our minds as we, we won't have time to fully develop them today, but let's read them so that we'll be thinking about them as we uh, go about uh, our week. Verse 3 of chapter 10 of Exodus, And Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, to, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the surface of the land, so that no one will be able to see the land. That's a lot of grasshoppers. <laughs> and they shall also eat the rest of what has escaped. Meaning the hail. Well, it says that. What has left you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. You know, I mean, the, you know, whatever tree is going to try to send out a little sprout and after being battered by the hail, it's going to be chewed away. Then your houses shall be filled and the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh, just spun around on his heel and out the door. And Pharaoh's servants said to him, I mean, no, his servants stood there bug-eyed, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? They're, They're talking to Pharaoh. They're getting a little bolder here. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going by the way? Moses said, We shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We will go. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. I mean, we're taking everything. And Pharaoh said to them, Thus may the Lord be with you. If I ever let you and your little ones go, take heed, for evil is in your mind. (laughs) He's getting the picture. They're not just going out in the wilderness to sacrifice. They're out of here. I mean, they're gone. Not so go now the men among you and serve the Lord for that is what you desire. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh's beginning to get a picture here, and he doesn't like the picture. He has not been brought to his knees yet, but he will be. Won't just take locusts, as we'll see the vast plague of darkness. You know, I don't think that's Unless we've been thrown down in a dungeon and kept there for a few weeks, we we really don't know what it's like to be in total darkness, days on end. Absolute blackness. Not a star in the sky or a moon or the sun or anything for days and days and days. It's abnormal. And it's very, very freaky. And then, of course, the ultimate. The death of all the firstborn from amongst the Egyptians. That's what it will take. Finally, to bring Pharaoh to his knees. And yet, even then, even then, somehow, he decides after the Israelites are already getting ready to get out, totally out of Egypt, I made a mistake and I'm going to correct it. The guy's a total fool. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Now, Pharaoh worshiped gods, but he's saying there is not the God that Moses is talking about, and that's the true and the living God, and it brings total disaster to the land. Well, next week we'll, we'll look at this passage and uh, the development of the eighth plague.